Heavenly Father, I thank you for the, uh, the privilege, the opportunity to share your word with your people today. I pray that you would give us ears to hear and hearts that are open to receive what we need to hear from you today. In Christ's name and for his glory, amen. You can be seated. Well, you could, uh, you could smell her before you saw her coming into the sanctuary and into the pews of the church because she reeked with alcohol. And sometimes she would come into the church smelling like this and plop down in the pew and get settled in. And then after I would get going on my sermon, she would interrupt she would interrupt sometimes with questions, sometimes with objections. Actually, her questions were quite insightful. Her timing was bad, but I was impressed with her biblical knowledge. Her name was Fran. We'll call her Fran. Her presence, needless to say, did not create a comfortable environment in the church. Did not create a comfortable environment for visitors and for families with children. And Fran was with us for a couple of Sundays, maybe two or three Sundays. We had the opportunity to invest in her for a short time, and then she went off. I pray that what we did planted seeds in her life. But how should the church respond to people like Fran? Sometimes we can think of the church as a haven from the messiness of the world. A comfortable place for people who have it all together. And that's how the religious leaders thought. Religious leaders in Jesus' day, they thought about the kingdom of God like that. They badmouthed Jesus for fellowshipping with tax collectors and sinners. And that's how Luke 15 starts. That the Pharisees and the scribes said about Jesus, this man receives sinners and eats with them. So Jesus, in response to that critique, this man receives sinners and eats with them. In response to that critique in Luke 15, he doesn't argue here with the scribes and the Pharisees. But he begins to tell stories about the lost and the found. The lost sheep. The shepherd has lost one sheep. He goes after that one sheep. And when he finds that lost sheep, he rejoices. And Jesus says, this is how your heavenly father feels when one sinner comes home. When one sinner repents. There's rejoicing. He tells the parable of the lost coin. The woman who's lost this precious coin, and when she finds it, she rejoices. And now, he tells this most famous parable, parable of the lost son, the prodigal son. And this, this parable, I've broken into four scenes. The first scene is a picture of sin. A picture of sin. 
the young son asked his father to give him his inheritance now. Now, in that culture, and even in today's culture, that would be pretty insensitive, I think, for a son to say to a father, I want my inheritance now. Brian, you're an estate attorney. (laughs) Probably would be a little sensitive in that context, right? I want my inheritance now. In this culture, in Middle Eastern culture in the first century, it was like saying to your father, I want you dead. I, don't, I, I want you to go ahead and die. I want the inheritance that's coming to me. And the father would have been well within his rights to disinherit his son for this. And to say, not only are you not getting the inheritance, but you're dead to me. Go and leave, and I don't want anything else to do with you. This was a great insult. But the father shows mercy and gives him his portion of the inheritance and lets him go. And it says the son went off into a far country. Into a far country. He did not want to be under the watchful eye of his father. He wanted to live life on his own terms. He wanted to live it up away from the gaze of his father. And this is why some people run from God. This is why some people reject God. They don't want to live under God's gracious rule. In fact, one famous atheist put it this way. We had motives for not wanting the world to have meaning. We wanted to prove there's no reason why we should not do what we want to do. We objected to Christian morality because of our sexual morality. We didn't want it to interfere with our personal life. We wanted to live life, he was saying, on our own terms, away from God. And, and, and that's, that's at the heart of sin. It's a desire to be apart from God, to to be in the far country, to get as much distance from the Father as possible. And sin does that. Sin separates us from God. And this is not a popular notion today, the notion of sin and sin separating us from God. It's not a popular idea in our culture. In fact, one of the most popular spiritual writers in America today, Richard Rohr, writes this. We have never been separated from God. This is popular spirituality today in America. We've never been separated from God. If we've never been separated from God, we don't need to repent. We don't need to be reconciled. We don't need a reconciler. We don't need Jesus. But this is... Again, something that is taught in our popular culture and popular spirituality today. Sin is not popular. And yet, Jesus gives us here a picture of sin as separation from the Father. The Son went off into a far country, away from His Father. Scene one, a picture of sin. Scene two, a picture of repentance. The process of coming to repentance. 
The, the prodigal son eventually spends all of his inheritance, it says, in reckless living, expensive living. Now, when he gets home, the younger, his older brother accuses the younger brother of spending the money on prostitutes. But I think that's just to add uh, insult to injury. The text doesn't say that's what he did. It says he spent it in reckless living. You could translate that expensive living. He wanted to be a high roller. He wanted to live it up. He wanted to party away from his dad and spend the money that came from the inheritance. And he went through it. He was having fun until the money ran out. And not only did the money run out, but a severe famine arose in the far country, it says. And he was so hungry because of this famine, but no one would give him anything to eat. Where did the friends go that he was having fun with? So the prodigal son resorted to hiring himself out as a field hand. And what was his job assignment? To feed the pigs. Now we know in the Old Testament, according to the Old Testament, for a Jewish person, a, a pig is an unclean animal. And so here's this Jewish boy who's lost everything. And he's reduced to feeding an unclean animal, feeding the pig. Somebody said this is like hitting Jewish skid row. He's asked to deal with pigs now. He's so hungry that it says he's longed to be, he longed to be fed with the pods that the pig ate. And then in verse 17, there's this turning point. This is how God often turns us to him. Gets us to a place. Allows us to suffer the consequences of our choices apart from him. Gets us to a place of hunger. Desperation. So that we can come to ourselves, And that's what happened to the prodigal son. It says he came to himself. Verse 17. He came to his senses. You could paraphrase it that way. And I wonder as we think about our own journey with the Lord, if you can look back on a time where the Lord allowed you to suffer the consequences of your choices and your sin, your choice to live apart from Him, and you came to a place of hunger and desperation. And that was the beginning of repentance and coming back. Have you discovered that it often takes suffering the consequences of our sin to bring us back to God. Sometimes we hear dramatic stories of people coming to God, repenting after they've hit rock bottom and they've lost everything. They came to God after spending time with the pigs, so to speak. But sometimes people discover their need for God after great success and achievement, at least as the way the world defines great success and achievement. I heard a story of a pastor who became, after he retired from the pastorate, he became a chaplain for people who were hiking on the trails in uh, different national parks. And he was at the Appalachian Trail. And he was a trail chaplain. And he said, I didn't wear a collar. I didn't have a, a name tag or anything to really identify me as a pastor. 
But what I did is I, I would just start talking to people on the trail and spending time with them. He said most people out there on the Appalachian Trail, they're searching. They're out there for a reason. And so he said I would just sit down at the campfire and start talking to folks. Why are you, why are you out here? What's going on? And they wanted to talk. And he said he met this one guy uh, he called Billy the Hiker, who he said was extremely rich and extremely successful. And this man had 32 patents to his name. But he told him, he said, I've got, I don't need any more money. Now I'm wondering what's the meaning of life. Now I'm wondering what am I going to do next with my life. I, I've had what the world says you need to have to feel fulfilled. But here he was saying, I'm empty. I'm hungry. He didn't suffer from physical want. But there was a spiritual need that the material things that he had had not fulfilled. And that's why he was out there to find himself. And this trail chaplain said, well, let me tell you about somebody who can satisfy your deepest longing. And he led Billy the Hiker to Jesus on the Appalachian Trail. There are people all around us, like this hiker, like the prodigal son, like the lady I mentioned at the beginning of the story. People all around us who are hungry, and we have what they need. The gospel of Jesus Christ. Well, the prodigal came to his senses, and so he, he devised a plan. I'm going to go to my father, and I'm going to say, here's the repentance. Father, I have sinned against heaven. Our sin is first and foremost against God. And then he said, and before you. Our sin is an offense against God, and it hurts other people. I take this to be genuine repentance, the stirring of genuine repentance in the heart of the prodigal son. I've sinned. He admits it. That's a key ingredient to repentance. And then he pleads for mercy. Take me back as a hired hand. I don't expect you to take me back as a son. Take me back as a hired hand. This is a plea for mercy. And that, that's a, another key ingredient to repentance. Admitting your sin, pleading for mercy. And then this leads to the third scene, which is a beautiful picture of God's grace for sinners. When he was a long way off, his father saw him and he felt not rage. Here he is, the loser. No. Not vengeance. Here he comes and I'm going to tell him how much he's hurt me. He felt, not shame, for what his son has done. Because in those days, this was a village culture. Everybody knew, most likely everybody knew, well, how the father, how the son had brought disgrace. He didn't feel shame towards the son. He felt compassion. Compassion. And he ran and he embraced him and he kissed him. Now, 
Ken Bailey is a commentator and scholar who studied this passage for many, many years. And he lived in the Middle East. And um, he's studied this passage in Middle Eastern context. And so when you read what he writes, he brings out things that maybe with our Western eyes we don't always pick up. And he said, you know, in the Middle East, men don't run. In first century Middle East culture, men didn't run. And especially prominent men, wealthy men like this father was. Uh, you know, they, they would never have hiked up their robes and shown their legs and start running through the village to get to their son. Uh, he said, you know, even in Western culture, we, you might see the president wearing a, a jogging outfit and, and jogging once in a while, but you wouldn't see the president or a prime minister in his three-piece suit running down a street chasing after a taxi cab. It's beneath the dignity of the office. And Bailey goes on to say, this kind of emotion that the father is showing embracing his son, falling on his neck and kissing him. That's something that was completely unexpected in this kind of patriarchal culture. Yes, a formal kiss on the cheek is one thing, but embracing him like this, kissing him like this, it's not what fathers did in cultures like that. The point is, this is a picture of love that is bursting the bounds of propriety, bursting the bounds of what's dignified. This is a father who's willing to be undignified to express the love that is pouring out of his heart towards his lost son. A love that's willing to be undignified. And friends, that points us right to the cross of Christ, doesn't it? The cross of Christ, a place of shame and indignity, and God in His love and His mercy to save us, to save sinners, to save prodigals, did this out of love. As we heard from Paul in 2 Corinthians 5, He became sin for us who knew no sin. He was not a sinner. Christ was not a sinner. But He became sin. He took the penalty of sin for us in order that we might be the righteousness of God. I wonder if there's somebody here today who might think, you know what, I've gone too far. I've been away too long. I've been in the far country. I've, I've grown apart from God. I've grown distant from God. I've made choices that I'm ashamed of. I've been with the pigs. I've been down in the dirt. I've been too dirty. It's been too long. I'm too ashamed. Don't you see in this story, this parable that Jesus is teaching here about the love of God that God rejoices to receive prodigals? It creates joy in the heart of the Father to receive those who come to Him. He joyfully receives and embraces all who come to Him in repentance. A father doesn't even let his son finish the prepared speech. The, the son was going to say, um, I've sinned against heaven and earth. And then he was going to say, and, and here's, here's what I'll do. I'll come back if you, if, if you will hire me. I'll come back as a hired servant. 
The father doesn't even let him finish that. He jumps into action. He, he says to his servants, bring out the best robe and clothe him. Bring out the shoes. Give him a ring. He covers his shame. He restores his dignity. He restores him to a place of sonship in the father's house. He cares for his needs. He celebrates that his son has come from death to life. Let us eat. Let us celebrate. Kill the fatted calf. My, my son was dead. He's alive again. He's lost and he's found. This is a picture, friend, of God's love for sinners and his joy towards those who come home. The fourth and final scene focuses on the elder son who grumbles. He grumbles here against this display of grace. He begrudges the grace that the father shows the younger brother. I've served you all these years, he says. I've never broken any of your commandments. Really? Does any father here believe that? Never broke any of the commandments. Any of your commands. I perfectly obeyed you, Father. Probably a little editing there of personal history. But, but he seems to think of his father as a kind of taskmaster. I've served you. I've obeyed you. And he doesn't understand that all that he has is a gift from the Father. He is living by the grace of the Father. He's living by the generosity of the Father. And the Father assures him that he will continue to live by the generosity of the Father. All that is mine is yours, the Father says. You've always had everything. And you'll continue to have it. You've been living and you will continue to be living by my generosity. So, it's fitting, though, that we're going to celebrate because your brother has come home. Your brother, the older brother called him your son, and now Jesus is making him personal. No, he's your brother too. Your brother's come home, and so it's right for us to celebrate. He was dead, and now he's alive. But the point is, when you don't know your need for grace, and you're not aware of God's grace, and you've not experienced God's grace, it's hard to celebrate grace. The grace extended to other people. And so we need to remember the grace of God that's been given to us so we can be gracious to people who need to know that there's a loving Father who will welcome them home too. Pastor Zach Eswine writes in one of his books about the need for preachers to remember their prodigal days. And for older Christians to remember their prodigal days. I don't know about you, but there's some things I'm ashamed of that I did when I was 15 and 20 and 25. Remember not the sins of my youth, David says, or my rebellious ways. What were you like at 15, 20, 25? We need to remember where we've come from. We need to remember that we've been saved by grace. We need to remember that, and not only, Zach Eswine says, remember it, but we need to share our testimonies with other people. Sometimes parents need to share that with their children. I haven't always been like this. 
And this will help us not fall into the elder brother attitude and help us overcome the Pharisee within. It will help us welcome sinners like us to come home. But friends, it's not just about where we've been, but it's about where we are now too, because we still need grace. Prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Come, come thou found. Prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart, Lord, take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. What will bind my heart to God when I'm tempted to leave again is the truth that Jesus teaches here about who God is and about his character. That he is a loving father who runs towards me even though I ran from him. That he has become undignified to show love for me in order to dignify me before him. That he endured my shame on the cross to cover my shame. Yes, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. But in light of the love that you've shown me, here's my heart, Lord. Here's my heart. Take and seal it for thy courts above. How about you? Do you need to make that commitment today? In light of who God is, who Jesus is teaching us who God is. You need to make that commitment once again to renew your heart and to say to the Lord, bind my heart to you. Because there are things that are pulling me away. And so in light of what you have done and who you are, here I am again this Sunday at Church of the Resurrection. In this season of Lent, a season of renewal. And I can sense that you're drawing me back. Today's the day to come home. Today's the day. And the Father is waiting with welcome arms. And he runs to greet prodigals. Amen.